0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Today on the show, at long last, we are doing the book of Leviticus, as I have been hinting toward for such a long time on this show, and I'm very, very excited to finally be doing it. But I have to say, Dad, I got the feeling that you were somewhat less than excited than I was, and that's why we're only doing this in season two rather than in season one, as I might have wanted. Can you please explain to our listeners why you were reluctant to delve into the wonderful book of Leviticus?
1: Well, it's an old, unhappy memory. Uh, in college or seminary. I can't recall which I was assigned to read the book of Leviticus, and I kept falling asleep, (laughs) and I couldn't make it through. I just, after so many different distinctions between whole offerings and burnt offerings and raised offerings and all sorts of other offerings. I couldn't get past the first seven or eight chapters. I kept nodding off. It was sort of like the early efforts I made at reading Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia. I just could not persevere through. And so I faked it and got through the test or the quiz on Leviticus based on a lot of prejudices against the book, which probably suited the prejudices of the instructor. But in any case... (laughs) Uh, uh, I've never looked back to the book of Leviticus since then, since you uh, instructed me to do my homework for this podcast. So I've done my homework. I've read the book of Leviticus. I have to say it was a very interesting way to spend Christmas Day afternoon. (laughs)
0: Well, I can understand that uh, trying to read something comprehensive, even if it is short like Leviticus, certainly as long as Thomas, um, comprehensiveness is not necessarily the most scintillating read. But I'm curious now, after your Christmas Day indulgence in Leviticus, have you come around at all on the book?
1: Yeah, I have. I, You know, I'm I'm engaged in writing my theological commentary on Joshua for the Brazos series right now. And I actually found a whole number of points that, uh, in Leviticus that illuminated certain things in Joshua, which of course was an incentive for me to bear down and really try to understand what's going on. Um, your brother asked me what I found interesting in Leviticus, and I told him, uh, I asked him a rhetorical question. I said, have you ever felt like you're polluted, like you've you're just stained, you're, you're, you're just, uh, washed over with muck and you can't get it off of you. Uh, just that sense and that, and that you're contagious, that you're whatever you're, however you got into this situation, you're going to be spreading it. And it's, it's kind of a hopeless feeling, isn't it? And he looked at me and he said, wow, yeah, I think everybody has feelings like that from time to time. And I said, in a lot of ways, that's the problem that the book of Leviticus is trying to address.
0: Well, that's an excellent insight. On one level, what Leviticus is is the holy God's act of reclaiming life and living creatures from the inevitable processes of entropy. And entropy align very closely with pollution. I mean, entropy is obviously a modern word, but what is con- constantly threatening life is its disintegration. And as we're going to see, a lot of the stuff that we find weird and off-putting about bodily fluids, for instance, is very much addressed to that in a very holistic way that you can't separate it You can't separate out the emotions you have or that existential sense of pollution from the actual reality that you live in the body.
1: That's right, yeah. And anyone who's uh, like I had with my stroke uh, a couple of years ago had the awful experience of of losing control over your bodily fluids. You know that the way that this soils you uh, is so humiliating, so disgraceful. And even though you can't moralize about it, obviously it's not a question of moral good or evil. Nevertheless, you feel disgusting and disgusted.
0: Yeah. Well, and the moral the moral qualities actually don't attach to those things in Leviticus. What's remarkable in Leviticus is how easy it is to fix the problem of pollution from a divine perspective. Mm-hmm. It is not heavily weighted towards morality. There are definitely moral concerns in Leviticus, but again, this is a much more holistic picture. And honestly, I would say the kind of standards we have now for cleanliness, how often you're supposed to shower, how your hair is supposed to look, how you're never supposed to smell and so forth are far more demanding than anything Leviticus would have expected. <laughs> no. of (laughs) people. (laughs) So I don't think it's fair to dismiss it on those grounds.
1: No, there you go. Yeah, I'll buy that.
0: Okay. Your reaction of boredom to Leviticus, I think, is actually typical but mild compared to the usual reactions of moderns and Gentile Christians who attempt to read Leviticus. I think usually it gets a much worse reputation than that as being either essentially, you know, an early hygiene treatise. Like I've heard people say that, oh, the Jews weren't supposed to eat pork because of, you know, God was keeping them safe from trichinosis. You know, that that does not hold up. (laughs) And if uh, Leviticus were a hygiene treatise, then the people would have died of dysentery, not of leprosy because um, Leviticus is not interested in, for example, bathroom products. And um, if you are going to teach an early people on how to be safe from disease, then that should be your primary concern. But there is nothing about that in here. Right. So... Uh, Leviticus is not about hygiene, but the, I think, more serious accusation that generally accrues in a thoughtless Gentile Christianity is that it is somehow an exemplar of the bloodthirsty primitive God of old, the vengeful one that we have so happily left behind in the New Testaments, and, um, and that any of the commands within it are simply dismissed on the grounds of what uh, Ephraim Radner, who wrote a great commentary on it, calls the shellfish principle. Well, we eat shellfish now so we can do all the rest of these things in Leviticus too which is a, a it's indicative of how again gentile christians have no sense of the process and the pain and the cost that the early church went through trying to figure out how exactly it was going to relate to all of these laws given to Israel and uh, hopefully we'll get back to that toward the end
1: i hope so too i uh, in my joshua commentary i cited martin luther Commentary on Deuteronomy seven, which is the uh, the seat of the legislation regarding the man that is the harem, uh, uh, the Hebrew word harem, uh, warfare that devotes to destruction everything that's tabooed, uh, and Luther uh, very helpfully pointed out here that not every word of God in the Scripture is a word of God spoken to us. And so these commands about utterly destroying the Canaanites uh, were only valid uh, for a particular situation and have no abiding claim, especially on Christian readers, because they actually contradict the natural law and so forth. And I think then on the other hand, Luther uh, says, but spiritually, the command... uh, to sacrifice everything that interferes with the comprehensive claim of the Lord upon all of life is still valid. So there's a way of looking at the legislation in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and saying it's not literally binding on us, but if we can understand the spirit of the legislation, the contrast between the letter and the spirit, Uh, we can profit much from studying the law of Moses.
0: Well, yes, but that I think is pretty complicated because there have been lots of really bad efforts to spiritualize the Old Testament laws that are actually, I think, ultimately both misunderstanding and disrespectful of what it's after. And that has just, I guess for me, I've realized that that's been such an easy way to to not take the actual details and the actual words of the Old Testament very seriously, because we can just turn it into a spiritual thing. And I think in the process, that has meant only concerning ourselves with spiritual realities and somehow not bodily realities. Well, no,
1: wait, I didn't, I, I didn't say Platonize the text. That's not what I said.
0: I'm not accusing you necessarily, Dad. I'm just saying that this has been a very long standing tendency in Christian interpretation of these Old Testament texts. So, and just to um, make the the further point about the difficulties of this book for Gentile Christianity is um, in the Revised Common Lectionary, we only get two readings from Leviticus in the entire three-year cycle. Both of them are in year A with uh, Matthew's Gospel, and one's on Epiphany 7 and the other is in proper 25. It's possible that you wouldn't get either depending on the church calendar that year. And both of those readings are from chapter 19, including the verse, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So, getting to this. this, you know, summit points of Leviticus's argument, but again, leaving out all of the, the details, the actual reality of dealing with the body. But by contrast, actually, when Jewish children are introduced to the Torah, Leviticus is the the first book that they are given to read, which seems completely odd to us. We think that they would start with something exciting like, you know, creation or the Exodus. But no, Leviticus is actually where Jewish children begin their reading of the Torah. So that indicates to you something of the centrality of its vision to what it means to be a Jewish believer. Finally, my last comment on the difficulties we have in approach here is that we have, again, in Gentile Christianity, an instinctive feeling that Jesus somehow is on the side of the prophets and sort of against the Torah, that with his Sabbath breaking, he's essentially pitting prophets against Torah. But uh, the core of his own teaching is right out of Leviticus because um, he quotes Leviticus nineteen eighteen, when he says, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself," and um, Mark twelve thirty one and parallels, for example. So, and in in. Jesus discourse it's often the the discussion can come from within the Pentateuch it's not prophet versus Pentateuch so I think that's important for us to realize that there is a continuous line of thought obviously you know, we can't deny that Jesus or um, what Christianity became after him does have some obvious very obvious differences in the way it practices the faith as opposed to or in contrast to Judaism but uh, all of that I think has been such a long-standing habit of mine that it's very hard for us to get get into what Leviticus is at. And um, perhaps the most striking thing for me to discover in this regard was that Leviticus actually has very few direct laws or commands. It's, uh, we read it as such, but in fact, quite a lot of it is um, voluntary. It's caged in the uh, language of if, if a man you know, is in such and such a situation. Uh, By one count I read, most books of the Bible have three to four times the number of commands that Leviticus does. So to see it purely as a book of laws that are no longer relevant, no longer have claim on us past the uh, Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 is to, to miss what is actually going on in the book.
1: All right, well, let's try to understand what's going on in the book and I'll be your pupil and you'll be my teacher.
0: Okay, sounds good. Well, I I mean, I, I think it's only fair since uh I gave Joshua a chance, so <laughs> I'm I'm grateful you're giving Leviticus a chance now.
1: Okay, fire away
0: All right. Well, so the study that opened this up for me, and I guess I should just say I got interested in Leviticus just because it did seem so utterly alien. And it is alien. It is probably the most alien book of the Bible for contemporary peoples. Uh, But I came across a book by Mary Douglas, who's an anthropologist, called Leviticus as Literature. And it was like, I don't know. It was like a bomb going off in my brain. It was so amazing. It rearranged all the furniture and just opened up the book to me. And thats uh, it's really her book that made me come to love it. The, the core issue um, and this this was very illuminating to me was different modes of thinking that human beings have employed across time and culture and she calls these analytical thinking and analogical thinking analytical thinking is the dominant mode of thinking now we could align it with scientific thinking though it long predates the rise of modern science it's very interested in causality and in repeatable results it's oriented towards facts it's positivistic and I think the key for us is that it crosses cultural boundaries easily because, for instance, um, in analytical thinking, we can develop, for example, a concept of hospitality. And then we could say that uh, hospitality in one society is inviting someone out to dinner at a restaurant. But in another society, it's bringing them to your home and slaughtering a goat and giving them the liver. If you look at the (laughs) superficial features of these two things, uh, elegant restaurant dinner versus uh, murdered animal and awful, you would say, what does the one have to do with the other? They're completely incomprehensible to each other. But if you create the analytical concept of hospitality, you can step back and say, ah, these are actually the same thing, but they have different forms. And that's one of the reasons why analytical thinking is so dominant now is because we live in so much more than ever, a globally connected world, we need to be able to step back from the immediate phenomena of human behavior to try to figure out what's going on. Obviously, like I said, it works well with science, um, with engineering, and um, in many uh, legal structures. Again, it's you separate the principle from the act and try to think through, you know, logically, what is their relationship in this way? So that's kind of our fallback position in our culture today. But what um, Mary Douglas talks about in analogical thinking is also ancient um, and still present, though not in the same obvious and dominant way. But it thinks more in aesthetic terms and relational terms or positional terms, which means that things gain meaning by where they are placed in relationship to other things. So, for example, think of a table setting. Why is the fork on the left and the knife and spoon on the right? I don't know. You could probably find a reason, but it wouldn't matter. The Knowing why it evolved that way would not make any difference to your perception of it. But you know when you see a beautifully set table arranged in a certain way that there's a kind of harmony and attractiveness to it. Or a stoplight. You know, there's an arrangement of the signals. You know, red on top, yellow in the middle, green on the bottom. If those were mixed up, even though you know perfectly well green means go, if the green was at the top, it would completely throw you because its position was wrong. Or if you think about music, uh, box fugues, for example, um, it's all about, the, I mean, the, the essence of music is the arrangement of notes in relationship to one another. That is what creates the beauty. You can't just take all the notes in Toccata and Fugue in D minor and rearrange them and expect to have the same effect. But you say, well, all the same notes are there. What's wrong with it? No, it's the relationship of the one to the other. And so it's actually this kind of thinking, that this analogical thinking, as she calls it, that is more the source of meaning for us, even though we tend to be facts first in our orientation, meaning does not really admit very well of factual analysis or positivistic analysis. In fact, positivism is opposed to the whole concept of, of meaning on that on that ground. But actually, what kind of Speaks to us and moves us functions more on this analogical way, um, the way stories move us in the way that a dry recitation of facts do not, and that is how Leviticus works. So what makes it hard for us to access Leviticus is that it gives no analytical rubric for understanding itself or applying it to our time or our our Christian faith. There are absolutely no directions or user's manual on Leviticus how to make that analytical move. We have to figure that out. Out and do it. And we have no choice but to do it because of our enormous cultural difference from Leviticus. But in order to get what it's doing is we, we can't assume it works analytically because it doesn't. It works analogically. And so to to open up the book, we have to see how the classifications and the cumulative progress of the book in its position of each particular part is building up to a portrait of the Lord and his relationship to Israel.
1: All right. That sounds plausible. You mean there's a narrative progression through Leviticus? It's not just one thing after another?
0: No, in fact, there is a very, very deliberate progression through the book. And if you like, I can tell you about that right now.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm your pupil. Teach me.
0: Okay. All right, so the book itself takes place over the course of about a month and at the foot of Mount Sinai. So it's right between the construction of the tabernacle and Exodus, and then the resumption of normal action in numbers. And Sinai is the key word of the book. It pops up at important places and is the very final word of the book. And Sinai is basically the... Icon that is stamped onto Leviticus and all of the important things that Leviticus talks about. So, if you think about Sinai, you remember from the Exodus story, there are three zones of Sinai. So, there's the bottommost zone that Israel can gather around, and then there's the middle zone that Moses and later the elders are allowed to ascend for their converse with God, and then the topmost part is for God only. And that, that image or icon of Sinai is, the, in a way, the dominant motif of reality for Leviticus. Sinai is on and in everything. So, for example, Sinai is the structure of the tabernacle. So same thing. There is the approach around the tabernacle. There is the part for the priests. And then there's the holy of holies, mm-hmm. which only the high priest can go on once a year. That is supposed to recreate Sinai on a local level. But it has the same, same zones and the same warning about transgression. So, of course, obviously, you only go, only the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and only once a year. That's the same as the topmost peak of Sinai. Um, Also, Mary Douglas supposes um, that this is an interesting thought, that the tabernacle of Leviticus, unlike Deuteronomy, can be reproduced and moved. So you can actually theoretically have multiple Tabernacles not just one and the reason she infers this is because all sacrificial animals are to be brought to the tabernacle which obviously wouldn't be practicable uh, after a very large distance right. and so it's something actually more prescient of the the synagogue or the church in the fact that this localized presence of the Lord can be repeated everywhere because it's on the pattern of Sinai everywhere um, or if you think about how the Lord's Supper can take place at any Church anywhere in the world it doesn't have to be you know only in Jerusalem, for example. Um, it's the same sort of phenomenon going there. So the tabernacle is Sinai. But it's not only the, the tabernacle, there is also the sacrificial animal. So you probably remember dad reading about these various, like the long liver of the lobe can't be eaten and the fat around the kidneys can't be eaten right. and, and things like that. Right. And you wonder why, why is that the case? Well, again, it is because Leviticus sees Sinai in the body of the sacrificial animal. And so there is the layers of access in actually, well, dad, you're a, you're a hunter, right? So you know, when you butcher an animal, you slice through the belly and there is a layer of fats covering the organs and you have to remove that. And then you see the organs laid out in a certain way. And so so Leviticus is seeing that covering of fat being the same as the cloud around Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And then it identifies within the, the organs, what is the restricted zone? And that's the, the kidney fat and that, that, that liver lobe that it talks about. That is the that is the peak of Sinai in the body of the animal itself.
1: Interesting. Yeah. That's, and so the fat has to be put on the fire to make a pleasant odor going up to the Lord, uh, reascending in that way to Sinai, the peak of Sinai.
0: Exactly. So it's instead of penetrating upwards, to the mountain, you're penetrating inwards into the sacrificial animal. So, Which also, I mean, it, it's amazing the kind of holiness it assigns to an animal's body that's been given to feed the people of Israel. That itself is an icon of Sinai. And then to finally get to the your uh, your uh, question about the narrative progression of Leviticus that started this is that Leviticus itself is constructed around the pattern of Mount Sinai. So there is uh, chapters one through seventeen, as you know, as we number them now. This is the the outermost zone um, that all the Israelites can approach. It concerns Israelites and their sacrifices. And um, there's a nice diagram in Mary Douglas's book. But if you imagine you're coming in. To the, the outermost part of the tabernacle, and you're making a circuit all the way around. So imagine you, you go to the right with chapter one, and then when you come back to the entrance, you're at chapter 17. That means that about halfway through 1 through 17, in chapters 8 through 10, you are actually passing in front of the entrance into the holy place. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly at that point that you get the story about Aaron and his son's ordination, because of course, they are the ones who are ordained to pass through that door. But you also get the weird story of the unauthorized fire that causes the sons to be killed. Right. And so, you know, to, again, to us, that's like, you know, why this horrible story about these poor, innocent boys being killed, but that functions within the text of Leviticus as a warning against blasphemy, like saying, you are in front of the entrance to the holy place. So this is this is not the place to screw around. You are, you are to be holy as God is holy before you enter into the holy places. So that's the function of that story within it. And then when you pass into the holy place, that corresponds to um, chapters 18 to 24, we get get more of what we would call the ethical teaching there, as well as the yearly festivals. And again, we have another warning story. This is about the half-Israelites young man who blasphemed the name of the Lord and got stoned to death. That's where the eye for an eye teaching comes from. But again, that that is at the point where you finished your tour of the holy of ho- uh, the holy place and are prepared to enter into the holy of holies. And then finally, chapters 25 to, through 27, the last three, are the most holy place and because of its um, ring construction, it's actually not 27, the last chapter, but 26, which is framed by 25 and 27. That is the the center itself of the Holy of Holies. And that's the chapter that deals with the terms of the covenants um, that are more familiar to to most of us. But in, in these three final chapters, we have the ideas of Jubilee uh, and the Sabbath year redemption and the coven- covenants, and a big emphasis on the name of God. So actually, the the structure, maybe narrative structure, is pushing <laughs> pushing it a bit. But the structure of the Levitical text is actually a tour of the tab- tabernacle, which is therefore a tour of Mount Sinai, and therefore recreating Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses' ascent to converse with God.
1: So this is you're taking all of this from Mary Douglas's book, right? This is her. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. This is all her stuff. Uh-huh. So far, yeah.
1: All right. Well, well, I, I could tell you that I didn't sense myself any narrative progression at all. You know, I, and of course, now that you're instructing me on Sinai as the massive metaphor of the whole book in the three zones of Sinai, well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I'll, I'll jump in, but why don't you continue? What's what's the payoff of this uh, narrative progression of the book of Leviticus? What does it open up for us?
0: So the payoff, I think for us, um, and I'm going to be here now more explicitly as a, a Christian reader um, than the, you know, with the anthropological re- approach, is that Leviticus is actually a theological book more than it is certainly a legal book. But in such a way that it isn't something that Christians can dismiss as irrelevant on the grounds of, for example, the shellfish arguments or um, spiritualize or Platonize away and just try to make a a quick transfer to something more culturally familiar to us. The idea that Sinai is imprinted on everything to me, is a very powerful image and suggests a a kind of weightiness to what Leviticus is getting at that needs to be carried through as we think about as Christians, what does Sinai actually continue to mean for us? And how does Sinai and Leviticus's reception of Sinai create certain realities that will be paid off fully in the New Testament?
1: So let's come back then to this question of a Christian reading of the book of Leviticus. And let's begin with something like the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which we talked about last year. You have the paraphrase in it of a Leviticus 11:44 to 45, Be holy as the Lord is holy, which is repeated in 19 uh, verses 1 to 4 and 22 verse 32. Be holy as the Lord is holy. Jesus says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So I think there's a pretty direct appropriation of the theology of divine holiness in the book of Leviticus. And I think we can talk about that theme of holiness quite a bit. But you wouldn't accuse the Sermon on the Mount of falsely spiritualizing Leviticus, would you? I mean, it's what, what is going on here is in some ways a radicalization and intensifying of these very Levitical themes, uh, so that holiness cannot be registered simply by rote performance of ritual, but is a matter that claims uh, the human heart as the motivating center of life. That kind of interiorization of the commandment, typical of the Sermon on the Mount, would then be in continuity with Leviticus, not a rejection of it.
0: Yeah, I certainly wouldn't accuse Jesus of getting Leviticus wrong. <laughs> and well, of course, and the fact is that Jesus is on the mount. So, you know, in Matthew's gospel, the reason Jesus is on the mount is because it is the, the mountain like Sinai. It's a new mountain right. where God speaks again. And so in that respect, the the Sinai connection is, is very strong there. Um, I like what you say about holiness as being such a central thing or in the the language of of Matthew's gospel be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect because we can simply think that holiness is like um you know a universal religious phenomenon or is a is an, an easily accessible concept but in fact where does new testament concept of holiness come from you know obviously it comes from the old testament and this is what i found so moving and intriguing about about Le- the Levitical account of holiness, so this is where I'm going to jump in with my uh, my Christian interpretation of Leviticus here, um, moving beyond what Mary Douglas does. But I would put it this way: Leviticus is the metaphysical substrate of the gospel, and when we take a uh, prophetic critique of religious practice-only approach to the the value of the Old Testament, we miss that actually it's in, in the Torah, and especially in Leviticus, that the very conceptual building blocks that are paid off in the New Testament are laid. And so holiness, obviously for Leviticus, as you correctly saw, is one of the major ones. What does it mean to call God holy or anything holy? And the primary meaning here is something that is set apart. The moral perfection, is something that should be part of it, but is not the foundation of it. It's the the set-apartness and the uniqueness of it. And that's what all of these, well, so, um, before I jump onto the next concept. So if you think in terms also of what the word church means, is that which is called out. To me, that's kind of a, a conceptual rhyme with holiness is to be set apart from everything else. Absolutely. But those, th- that conceptual foundation comes out of Levitical distinction of setting things apart.
1: Now, that's very good, Sarah. The And when you call it the metaphysical substrate of the gospel, the holiness of the Lord and so forth, uh, one of the things we're saying there, of course, is that the Lord is utterly unique. There's none like the Lord. And uh, this apartness, this separateness of the Lord uh, from all that is created is the creator-creature distinction, basically, is the fundamental presupposition uh, of the New Testament and its gospel. And what, uh, what struck me in reading Leviticus, you mentioned this text, I want to read it right now, chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, uh, about the holiness of the Lord. Listen to this. Now Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it. And they offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, Through those who are near me I will show myself holy, and before all people I will be glorified. And Aaron was silent. Period. Thus far the text. I think that's an astonishing statement uh, in which the holiness of the Lord is both his holy otherness and the manifestation of this holy uh, otherness before all people, which comes then to his glorification, even if it means that the the holiness of God, the Lord, is a two-edged sword. It can bless, but it can also slay. Is that the metaphysical substrate of the gospel that you're talking about?
0: That is certainly one of the pieces, for sure. And I think that's why you see the, the urgency of, but the particular direction of, of New Testament ethics, which is that it, it is always founded in who God is, that is the, the primary reality. But out of it then, because God does choose to uh, intermingle his own life with human lives, and therefore sinners lives, there has to be some corresponding um, claim and transformation of the human beings who are affiliated with God. Um, otherwise, it's, you know, it pollutes to use the language earlier in a very profound sense. It it pollutes God's reputation and God's presence among us, and there are simply far too many examples of people claiming to speak on God's behalf who have done and continue to do incredibly evil things to deny that connection.
1: Okay. Um, So what we're saying then is that according to the testimony of Leviticus, the holiness of God, the holy otherness of God, who nevertheless wills to manifest that divine holiness as glory before human creatures, is the indispensable presupposition of the New Testament message of the paradoxical justification of the ungodly. How's that?
0: Excellent. Couldn't have said it better myself. But there are more metaphysical building blocks here. Can I give you a few more of them? Please do. Okay, so another example is that in the New Testament, there is actually quite a bit more reference to Jesus' blood than to Jesus' death. The imagistic focus is on Jesus' blood. Now, why is that? So as I've sort of uh, set it up in the last two episodes, talking about the crucifixion and Anselm's Doctrine of the Atonement, you know, one of the questions that I've been raising again and again is why? Why did God have to or choose to solve the problem of human sin in this way? And we gave lots of other, I think, very excellent and illuminating answers. But I think perhaps the foundational answer of them all is because Leviticus created the world in which blood was the material by which atonement is made. And this is the most continuous theme, especially where sacrifice, well, even even the concept of sacrifice, again, though it's a human universal, the reason why the New Testament's tells us about the sacrifice of blood of Jesus Christ is because in Leviticus we understand about how offerings work, how sacrifices work, what it means for blood to be shed and how it sets things right. So for instance, the Levitical prohibition against consuming blood is because blood itself is life. There is a complete overlap in meaning and reality between blood and life and obviously if you if You know, you lose too much blood, you die. And anyone who bleeds instantly attends to it. There is nothing that grips your attention faster or stops you in your tracks and discovering that you are bleeding because it is your life. It's your life coming out of you. And so that that creative, the, the reality created around blood is something that Leviticus gave to us. And, you know, a book like Hebrews remembers that better almost than any other book of the New Testament. For instance, in I think 922, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, why is that? <laughs> it's not a, an independently ascertained principle of reality. It's a Levitical reality that God created the body, God created blood, and then God gave blood in order to bring us back to him, when we have gone awry. And so you see this progression in Leviticus of the the offerings that individuals can bring, and then the necessary sacrifice that the high priest makes on the day of atonement. And then the argument in Hebrews, of course, is that the final sacrifice, the final giving of blood that covers for all sins is the one of Jesus Christ's blood that is given for us.
1: Okay, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. 1711 in Leviticus says, blood is the life of the flesh. And that's why it's taboo. That's why you're not allowed to eat it in the kosher uh, rules Leviticus is giving. But it's also that that blood is holy to to the Lord. In all the sacrifices, the priest takes the blood and sprinkles it on the altar uh, in various ways or into the fire or something like that which is, I guess, a sign that the blood, meaning the life of the sacrificial victim, is being returned to the author of life, the creator. I think this association is also difficult for modern people, not only because it's gross, but because some of the imagery in our hymnody that has lifted up this theme is uh, really gross. Uh, The Isaac Watts hymn, I'll quote from memory, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I mean, that's (laughs) macabre, isn't it?
0: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it comes from an era where people probably saw and dealt with blood a lot more. Are you sure it's gross or is it just that we're too delicate? I mean, you're a hunter. You deal with blood regularly.
1: Yeah, but I don't want to dive into a pool of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and somehow think that's going to make me clean.
0: Well, maybe you're inadequately Leviticized. I don't know. <laughs> okay,
1: keep working on me, girl. We'll see how this goes. Okay.
0: Well, I'm just saying it's 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 an easy thing to dismiss when we live in a world where we never have to see blood because we give birth at hospitals and we send people to die at hospitals and our animals are slaughtered for us and then appear on nice little styrofoam packages. We don't have to see blood almost ever. And so I th- that's what makes me uncomfortable with just dismissing what that imagery might have meant to an earlier generation who had to face it regularly, whose who's, you know, brains couldn't help but be colonized by images of bright red blood.
1: Quite, quite, you know, I can tell a little anecdote about that here at Rono College. Some of my colleagues teaching world religions put up a series of photographs illustrating, very nice photographs, illustrating practices of the world religions And several of the photographs showed rather graphically uh, in an Islamic context, the sacrificing of a goat, the um, act of of slitting its throat and bleeding it out, preparing it uh, for the meal as a religious act and so forth. And there were objections. This is a trigger warning, trigger warning, a bloody scene on third floor of Weston Roanoke College. You know, so I, I kind of get what you're saying. And I think historically, it's very important if we're to appreciate Leviticus to grasp that it's not a punitive blood that's somehow paying for or compensating for the sins of the guilty. But this is an offering of the lifeblood that is cleansing those who have been polluted by the exigencies of embodied life.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to say that. So actually the animals are not, who are sacrificed, are not considered guilty. They're not, you know, it's not, as you said, it's not punishment on them. And that God is the one who gives the animal in order for you to give it back to God again. So God is providing the entire structure here. It's not something you're doing to placate an angry God, uh, like out of your own will or something, that God actually establishes how to deal with this problem. And then you are offering back the lifeblood to him rather than consuming it yourself because it is his in recognition of his. The case of the animal that does bear sins, the goat Azazel, actually is not killed. It's basically slapped on the butt and sent out and left to the to the wilderness somehow. So it's quite interesting that the sin bearer in this in that particular case is not killed. The blood is not shed. So that that is a really good point. It doesn't have this punitive quality but this more like this return of life to the source of life kind of thing. It's also interesting to note that again unlike Deuteronomy For Leviticus, um, every single killing of an animal is an act of murder unless it is brought as a sacrifice to the Lord. So there is not a sort of willy nilly permission that, okay, these are the animals that are okay for you to eat and um, therefore, you know, take them whenever you want. No, actually, even killing a cow is murder unless it is brought to the Lord and sacrificed there, which also means that every time you shed blood, you have to be in the presence of the divine. And then when you eat, the meat from it, you are basically having a meal with the Lord himself. So again, Leviticus takes creaturely life very seriously, and not just human life, but animal life. And further, while while I'm on a roll here, um, the word that is often translated as abominable or detestable in Leviticus is not the same word that's translated by those English terms in Deuteronomy. The word in Leviticus is tame, the Hebrew word, and it's almost unique to Leviticus. It seems to be and it seems to have a very different resonance than the abominable or detestable term of De- Deuteronomy and elsewhere. It seems to mean more like off limits or something you should shun. But there is no suggestion in Leviticus that you shun them because they are are filthy or disgusting or revolting to eat, like or like the word unclean would suggest. It simply means that these are not given to you. You, you are not to eat them because they are not for you to eat. And so uh, Mary Douglas argues that this is actually God's protection of nearly every animal species that Israelites would have encountered, and specifically reserving only a very few, the, the livestock animals, and then a few wild animals that hunters can take. Um, and even hunters, when they hunt, they have to immediately drain the blood um, after they've killed the animal and basically function as priests, sacrificing the animal to the Lord right on the spot as mm-hmm. well.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I'll tell a little anecdote. Many years ago in Slovakia, some uh, distant cousins uh, took me uh, on a hunt for the uh, red deer, the European red deer, which is like the American elk. And when the uh, animal was taken, there was quite an elaborate little ritual in which the hunters cut a bow of evergreen and placed it into the entrance wound, and recited a poem basically thanking the uh, animal for giving its life to feed the human beings. And I was struck that, and they told me this was an ancient tradition that's been done for centuries and so forth. And so this kind of idea that when you take the life of an animal to feed yourself... You must acknowledge the shedding of the blood and return thanks in this way by offering back by this little ceremony a a token recognition of the creator of, of you and the animal alike.
0: Yeah, I think, again, you find this in cultures all over the world, the, the recognition of hunters, I mean, who are actually engaged in the hunt, that a, a tremendous and somehow sacred act has taken place when you, as the the human, take the life of the animal to feed yourself. And it's not something to be done lightly. Again, I mean, I, right. I just think that's a lot less barbaric than most of our, our uh, you know, meat pra- oh, practices Oh, for anymore. heaven's sakes,
1: the, the barbaric thing is eating industrial meat from the factory farms that have been turned into factories, but don't get me started on that. Okay.
0: Well, I'll, I'll make, and, and the discussion of meat in a positive light then, you know, when I, Andrew and I were in graduate school, we did not have very much money. And actually it was the hunted animals that you took from your land that actually kept us alive in yeah. a very real sense. I mean, that was that that the, the life of the deer given for us during that time. Um, so I, I uh, yes, I, I also would defend hunting as, um, all the hunters I know are honorable hunters too. I know that you get these cultural stereotypes about irresponsible drunk people going out and shooting up whatever moves, but that certainly has not been my experience of the hunting community.
1: In fact, it's a way of getting involved deeply in ecology and ecological concerns.
0: And I guess that's why I want to defend the importance of blood imagery, because I think if you actually deal with the blood of an animal, you have a different feel for it than, you know, again, when you only see the styrofoam package. Yeah,
1: very good. Good point. Okay. All right, let's go on.
0: Let me give you some more metaphysical building blocks of the New Testament from Leviticus. And this follows very directly on. So, so much of Leviticus, again, is about taking care of the body and calling the body back from its inevitable demise into entropy and disintegration. So, for example, uh, you know, I've already mentioned briefly leprosy. Let me say a thing about that. So the leprosy of Leviticus is not what is in modern parlance called Hansen's disease, where, you know, your digits and your nose fall off, and it's this slow rot that's difficult to, to arrest the progress of um, the the term means various kinds of skin diseases. And apparently, modern medicine can't make heads or tails of what it's supposed to be, because it doesn't really correspond to any known medical ailments. So you could either say the, you know, the people who wrote Leviticus were not very astute healers, or you could say something else is going on here. And I'm following Mary Douglas again, who says something else is going on here. She sees the progression of the, the leprosy rules about the disintegration of skin. And then the next set of rules, about garments that are infected. And then finally, the house that is infected is not actually primarily about infection or contagion. It's a way, again, in the analogical form of thinking to assert the necessity of shelter for human survival. So your first shelter is your own skin. And so in a way, what the the leprosy laws are actually informing you of the fact is that you are your skin. And that is the limit between you and not you. And that is a holy limit. So if anything happens, happens to Disintegrate or break down or violate that limit, something is terribly wrong. So it could be something like disease that causes the skin barrier to go wrong. And obviously, again, we know if you get a cut, what's the first thing we do? We put disinfectant on it or we wash it because we know that the violation of that skin boundary is deadly for us. Uh, we will disintegrate if it is not dealt with. Um, if you think about crime, crime is refusing to, uh, like a physical assaults, is refusing to respect the boundary of your skin. So Someone has violated that in a way that they're not supposed to. By contrast, sexual intimacy is a merger or a, a transgression of the, of the skin boundary in a way that is authorized, but is of such tremendous impact that it can actually give rise to a new skin, which is a new human life. And that's why it's so important to regulate and maintain those distinctions as well. And that's why Leviticus is concerned with the bodily fluids that either give rise to life, coming from males and females, or bodily fluids that signify that life is leaking out, namely. Blood. All the other things, like your snot, or if you throw up, no interest whatsoever in Leviticus. Mm-hmm. So and then and then again, the garment is the next layer of protection around you uh, that keeps you safe and whole. And finally, your house is the third layer of shelter. And again, you can see that tripartite structure, like with Sinai. You know, in a sense, you could think of your body as the holy of holies. Um, and I think, and you see a very direct correspondence between that and Paul's comment that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I think that uh, again, is that metaphysical st- substrate is there. So all of which to me says that taking the body with such ultimate seriousness as the site of the reality of God's work um, that comes to full flower in the resurrection of the body in the New Testament. I see a, a direct line of continuity there. There's lots of options for salvation out there that are body unfriendly or body indifference. But the New Testament's picture of salvation is the bodily resurrection in order to have bodily community with other people. And I um, and, and, you know in, in previous episodes Dad, you've talked about how bodiliness is the thing that we share. Again, I see a a line coming right out of the Levitical concerns about how to keep the body in a state of integrity.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's very good. The redemption of our bodies, Romans 8. Yeah, very good. And so I guess, what about these, on this connection then, about sexual morality, what can you tell me about the prohibitions To use modern language, it seems to be incest, bestiality, uh, homosexuality, and adultery. Am I right?
0: So I I think what's happening there, again, this has to do with the integrity of the physical body um, and the potential for giving rise to life. So, you know, the incest taboo is a human universal and probably early peoples realized early on that the children that would come out of an incestuous union would somehow be um, damaged, (laughs) to to say the least. But also there's that sense of, you know, the, the family not branching out as families are supposed to do obviously in the case of um, bestiality and homosexuality for of course entirely different reasons no life can emerge from it and then in the case of adultery there is a um, well how can we say it there are there are too many transgressions of the skin boundary um, where there should only be one in order to create the you know the the specific pairing of male and female that gives rise to children I said, um I mean, that that would be my understanding of it. But I think actually, um, let me, this actually was had a great lead into another metaphysical building block here, um, which is Leviticus's interest in distinction. Now, this this part, I particularly um, give credit to Ephraim Radner, who I mentioned earlier, wrote a, a really wonderful and very deliberately Christian commentary on Leviticus for the, the Brazo series that you're writing for. And um, what he draws attention to is that distinction is the source of life. That is not immediately obvious, because I think we have, I don't know, maybe it's a Greco-Roman thing again, um, a fallback assumption that the goal of everything is unity or union or the return to the one. Harmony is likeness rather than difference. But I know uh, you learned from Leibniz, and I learned from Leviticus, that distinction and difference actually is what is life and and what is life-giving one of Leviticus's interest is in contrasting pairs. And the idea in contrasting pairs is not that one is better or than the other, but that they are made different in order for new things to come forth, and then to understand how each thing is God's. So for instance, obviously, in Leviticus, there is a distinction between the Israelites and the non-Israelites. And some aspects of that would make us uncomfortable today, both as modern human rights oriented people, and probably as Christians. But you should be surprised by the fact that in Leviticus, actually, the sojourner and foreigner belong to God as much as Israelites do, perhaps in a different way. But there is a huge emphasis on all the things that the sojourner is allowed to partake of, participate in. You are not to oppress them anyway, um, and to treat them in a certain way. So even though they are different, they are still both gods clean and unclean. Like I, I, I said, the animals that are off limits are not off limits because they're disgusting or God regrets having created them, but because that is not what they are given for. They are different from the animals given for you to eat. There is a difference between the, the priests and the non-priests. It's not because priests are inherently better. In fact, we see almost immediately in the case of Aaron's sons that they might very well be worse. And that is certainly a recurring theme of Old Testament literature. But the priestly class is set aside in order to be the ones who make offerings for the life of everyone else, not to be better. I think it's very hard for us nowadays not to see distinction as preference or distinction as classifying into better and worse. But I don't think that's what Leviticus is after. It's perceiving that reality is made up of difference. So how do you understand the difference? And that finally goes down to the very fundamental lived experience of the difference between male and female. How is it that both are human, obviously truly human, truly gods, but are different in some very fundamental way? And so for For Leviticus, you know, the laws around sexual morality have to do really with the fact that male and female are both human but are different, and their union gives rise to new life. Which is, I mean, it's mind blowing. (laughs) It seems so obvious, but it's extraordinary that this is how a new life comes about. So I think that's the metaphysical building block. Again, is this interest in distinction as the source of life? And then again, I would say this is something that comes to flower in the New Testament and Christian understanding of the Trinity, that God. God is not a monad, but God's oneness is actually comprised of distinction within. Again, I think this is something that has its roots in this Levitical way of thinking. Yeah, very
1: good, yeah. You can't have a beloved community without the distinction of its members from one another. It's only distinct members who can enter into a communion of love. And so this principle of individuation that you're talking about or of distinction would then indeed be a metaphysical presupposition of the New Testament.
0: Now, I don't deny, and we certainly shouldn't deny, that distinctions can be used in unethical or evil ways. That is, we have abundant experience of that. But I think maybe one of the, I don't know, philosophical challenges of our time is to think through how to do, how to claim distinction in the right way, you know, how to not have a unity that is homogeneity, or not how not to have a differentness that is ranking of better and worse. Um, But a kind of distinction that admits of, that lets distinction be, I mean, it's really, it's really a thing. And I think we probably also have to distinguish between, eh, distinguish, right, between distinctions that are valid and distinctions that are invalid, but also distinctions that are I don't mean to say that there is no distinction between better and worse or good and bad. That is certainly it too. But Leviticus is often after a different set of distinctions, not good, bad distinctions, but simply this difference versus that difference. And because they're all differences, it's easy to get tangled up in the head. So we we do need to bring our contemporary analytical thinking gifts to bear on dealing with this. But I don't think we should just reject the, the analogical perception of difference embedded in reality and dismiss that out of hand.
1: Right. and you know most fundamentally, that's the distinction between the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator, and us, the profane creatures. I mean, that's the fundamental distinction, isn't it? <laughs> and that, yeah, yeah. That, you want to call that metaphysical, it's fine with me. That certainly is the, a fundamental heritage of Israel undergirding the New Testament gospel. Uh, It means nothing to say that in the fullness of time the Word became flesh and dwelt among us if the Word is not qualitatively other, holy, the divine, as the prologue to John makes clear. So the distinction is presupposed. The distinction between creator and creature is the fundamental distinction that is presupposed in the good news of the Incarnation.
0: Yeah, well said. Well said. And in, in fact, that again, you beautifully set me up without even knowing it for my, <laughs> my next uh, metaphysical building block, which is that despite all of these distinctions, which are rigorously maintained in Leviticus, um, perhaps people know of the the warning against mixing together different kinds of fiber, which seems you know pretty bizarre nowadays. But that has to do again with this mapping of the world and its distinctions and its clarity. However, there are times in which the distinctions can be blurred and the boundaries can be crossed. But when it happens, it is always God's prerogative. So for instance, priestly garments are actually made of mixed fibers. And what that what that um, conceptually portrays to Israel is that God is the one who has the right to violate the boundaries of distinction. And the, the chimeras that are on the Ark of the Covenants, they're like hybrid creatures. Um, again, those are not animals that exist in reality. And should not be bred according to Levitical law, but the Lord is allowed to have them on the Ark of the Covenant to declare that he is the one who can cross these boundaries. And so once again, I will make the move from Leviticus to the New Testament, the ultimate chimera, one could say, or boundary crossing in this way is just like you said, when the divine son takes on human flesh, there has to actually be this absolute distinction between creator and creature for that move to be so miraculous and, you know, reality changing as it is
1: right right so it's all very helpful Sarah
0: yeah so um as we wrap up now, um, in Radner's commentary, he has this uh, a good line. He says, Leviticus is for Christians a lens rather than the object of vision itself. And although we have made Leviticus, or I have made Leviticus the object of our vision for this episode, I did it in order to basically advocate for it to become a lens again for us for reading the New Testament and for not dismissing it as being somehow barbaric or archaic or irrelevant or simply laws that we, you know, well, we can't keep anyway, because we don't have tabernacles or the the temple in Jerusalem anymore. But to see that actually what is happening in Leviticus is creating what reality is, uh, perceiving and depicting reality and the way it functions, how human beings and the rest of creation and God interact with one another in such a way that what happens in the person of Jesus in the New Testament is actually... You can conceive of it. You can make sense of it. You can see where it's coming from and why it works the way that it does. Instead of trying to get, an, an, uh, a, again, a generic account of why uh, blood should redeem. In fact, Leviticus tells us, it, Leviticus maybe even creates the world in which blood can redeem. And then it is to that world, the the Levitical world, let's say, that Jesus comes and redeems us.
1: Well, that's a very good uh, high note, a crescendo on which to conclude uh, this uh celebration of the glory of the Lord revealed in His holiness and throughout the book of Leviticus.
0: Well, have I won you over at all?
1: Uh, I think so, in part, anyway. I mean, there's a lot here that uh, I find very uh, intriguing. We haven't talked at all about certain New Testament objections to Levitical law, and I think for some people that will be a lacuna in this uh, podcast— but I'm I guess, like you've shown me, I'm far more impressed uh, with certain continuities with the New Testament, the day of the Atonement itself, uh, Yom Kippur, and the uh, rules around that uh, as background to the theology of atonement in the New Testament. The statement in seventeen seven that those who sacrifice to the idols of the Canaanites, are actually sacrificing to demons. That's the first mention of demons in the Old Testament I can remember. And uh, that's what Paul picks up at length in 1 Corinthians. Those who sacrifice to idols in fact sacrifice to demons. I think that's interesting the 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 polemic against sacrificing children to Moloch in 18:21 and 20 verse 2 I think is uh, instructive and Uh, For me, writing the commentary on Joshua, the whole chapter of 18 is saying, don't you be like the Canaanites. Uh, Their gross immorality in these ways is the reason for their impending disposition. And if you act like this, the land will vomit you out. What a powerful metaphor that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we could go on and on. The Festival of Booths. The, the law of retribution, the sabbatical, land sabbatical, the law of jubilee,
0: you know and that it's interesting those particular the 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 sabbath year and the jubilee year and the redeemer kinsman that's all in the the holy of holies portion of it and again you see that that for instance the the sabbath year or the jubilee year is making exodus permanently available to the israelites and if you again if you think about how we celebrate easter which you know is comes out of passover on good friday that is our our exodus also made permanently available to us
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's right. It's a way of living in Exodus, living in and out of Exodus liturgically with all these uh, festivals and uh, the various regulations. uh, And the Jubilee year, chapter 25, concludes with the statement, "'For to me the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God.'" And that's the grounds both for the prohibition of enslaving Israelites and also for the prohibition of erecting idols. Because if you erect, erect idols, that's the signal betrayal of the Lord, the liberating Lord who brought you free from Egypt, and the first step towards returning to the bondage of life in which Israelites are slaves again or something like right. that. Right.
0: And so you think of the New Testament resonance as you are not your own but you were bought with a price.
1: So glorify God in your body, right?
0: Right. It's I mean it really can you see the line there that I mean that comes right out of this Levitical metaphysical thinking.
1: There's another connection in Jubilee that I th- that I think is very important for ecological theology and ethics today. Uh, we mentioned earlier about the uh, honoring the blood of the animals that whose lives are sacrificed to feed us. The law of Jubilee requires that land that has been sold by a family in dire need or necessity must be returned to that family in the Jubilee year. And that's this idea that the land of Canaan is given to Israel not as a private commodity to be bought and sold on the marketplace, but as an inheritance in perpetuity. What a very different understanding of uh, land possession that is. In Leviticus, you have the idea that there's a covenant also between the generations, that you receive this land uh, on which to make your living so that you can pass it on to future generations. That's the principle behind the return of the land that's been sold or rented out uh, to the family to whom it was originally bequeathed. And the story of Naboth's vineyard, uh, do you remember that story where... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where the king says, I want your vineyard, and Naboth just objects and says it would be a disgrace before the Lord if I were to sell my family inheritance. No, it's not for sale at any price. And when you think about the dynamics of our present world economy, which scholars call neoliberalism, the whole principle is everything has a price. Nothing is sacred. Everything's for sale. Everything can be commoditized. So here in the book of Leviticus, you have a profound objection Uh, to that kind of political economy, so it seems to me.
0: Yeah. I, I have to say that's the one part I think would be hardest to actually instantiate the, uh, as, as an economist would say, the incentives are very difficult there, especially because, um, you know, talking about loans, loan forgiveness and something, you know, in year 47 and 48, is anyone giving a loan? <laughs> no. <laughs> and in year 47 and 48, are people trying to take the biggest loans they can because in year right. 49, it will be forgiven. <laughs> it is difficult to see how that would play out. But again, I think this points to the fact that if we look at Levin Leviticus primarily as a set of laws that are impossible to keep, whether because we don't have a tabernacle or because the incentives will not work in today's political economy. Either way that misses the point. The point is like you perceived behind it the idea that there are things that should not ever have a price on them, and that there is a covenant between the generations. That actually I think is more what Leviticus is about, is portraying this reality of these relationships to one another more than it is saying that this particular law must be observed in this particular way.
1: Amen. And that's why I'll call it a spiritual rather than a literal reading.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I know that you don't mean it in a platonic way, so I can grant it in that sense. That's right. Okay. Well, Dad, thanks very much for bearing with me through Leviticus. But, you know, I bore with you through Joshua, so I thought it was only fair. Next time, we'll try to do an Old Testament book that is uh, equally fun for both of us.
1: All right. We'll do that. What's next?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, So next time on the show, we are going to be talking about temporal authority, also known as the Doctrine of the Two Kingdoms.
1: In this 2020 political year in the United States, a very timely topic.
0: Do we have to talk about politics?
1: (laughs) No, we're going to talk about the two kingdoms, though.
0: Okay, good. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlekeywilson.com and paulhenlekey.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.